could you move? Do you mind? Okay. It's taller than me. <laughs> well, it's a real blessing and privilege to be here with you. I think I'm wired. <laughs> and not just from the oatmeal I had this morning, but uh, Jeremy has ways of uh, making me wired. <laughs> so it's a real blessing and privilege for Marlene and I to be here. Um, many of you we've known for many, many years, and uh, we do rejoice with you. Um, our church in Binbrook, which I am now just a member, I'm retired, <clears throat> but we began in 1854, so we're a little older than you, and um, actually began through American missionaries coming in to the Niagara Peninsula, um, our church's founding theological statement is the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And so we thank the Lord for his goodness to us as a little fellowship. And um, it's been so, so good to worship with you and fellowship with you over the years. Would you take your Bible now? I'm reading from the ESV. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. I'm taking my watch off, not that that'll mean anything. I asked the pastor how long I had to speak, and he said, oh, 10 after 12. And so <laughs> I think um, we're already over the limit. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1 down to the end of the chapter. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and he took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Mori. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me. 
because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why, didn't you, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Our Father, we love to worship you. We bow in your presence. We thank you for a day of beauty and of kindness and of faithfulness and of goodness. We thank you for filling these people's hearts with gratitude and praise and worship and thanksgiving. And we thank you especially for the gift of your beloved son who entered this sin-weary world that is cursed and he became like us in every way except for sin. And even there he took upon himself the sin of his people so that they might have the righteousness of the Savior. We come today and we praise you. We acknowledge that in ourselves we're weak and frail, but we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you now that once again we can put ourselves under the graciousness and the power and the efficacy and the truthfulness and the sweetness of your word. We pray you'll be kind to us. We ask for bread, we ask for fish, we ask for your spirit. Work in us so that you might work through us. Bless us so that you might make us a blessing. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I've had a fair bit of schooling in my life. I don't know if any of you have to go to school. Uh, I had to go to school. One of the blessings of my disability is that I didn't start school to grade three. But I had to make up for it by going to school for quite a few years. The thing that bugged me about school was that there were quizzes, there were pop tests, there were exams, all that kind of stuff, eh? But if you're going to get through school, you have to pass these tests, don't you? And I remember every year thinking in June, after I somehow managed to get through that year, that it should be easier in grade five, but it wasn't. And it should be easier in grade seven, but it wasn't. And then I got to the top of the heap in grade eight, and that should have been a breeze, but it wasn't. So I went to high school and started at the bottom again and worked my way up. And back then, not because you were overly dumb, but they just said you have to go to high school for five years. So we went to grade 13 and I thought, piece of cake until the test and the exams and all that stuff. Then I went to Bible college and there were pop quizzes and tests and exams. Went to university, there were tests and exams. Went to seminary, there were 
Everywhere you go, there are tests and exams. Well, at 17, I became a Christian. And the Bible said that there's nothing I can do to be saved. What I have to do is, in a sense, come out with my hands up, confess my sin, and trust in Jesus Christ alone as my Lord and Savior. Everything that I needed to be right with God was found in him. Not in a church, not in a pastor, not in a family, but only in Jesus. At 17, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and I thought, well, that part should be easy. But guess what? There's tests and there's exams. More important and more serious than even grade 8 or grade 13 or even seminary. In fact, one of the things, as I read the Bible, I found out that I became was something called a disciple. And... uh, as I went to school so much, not because I was smart. If I was smart, I wouldn't have had to go. But because I was so dumb, I had to keep learning stuff. And I found out that disciple means student or learner or pupil. And you know what I found out very, very quickly in the Christian life? Their tests and their exams. What we want to do today, both this morning and this evening, is look at the prototype of the great believer, the father of the faith, Abraham. And we want to see how God tested him and what God used to test him. Because if you're saved this morning, the most precious thing you have, according to the Bible, is your faith. It's more valuable. It's worth way more than gold. Now, you won't see it on the stock exchange. There'll be no indicators how faith is doing today. Maybe with oil, maybe with gold, but maybe with the American dollar. But you never see faith on the stock exchange because it's, frankly, out of this world. It's impossible to get anywhere on this planet. Faith comes from God. Now, when we go to school, we're we're tested and examined on a variety of subjects. When I was in high school, this would have been a bird today, just going to high school, you take four subjects, have an exam, and then it's over with, you take four more. When I was in high school, you took eight subjects all year, you had four sets of exams, and in June, they expected you to know everything about the whole year. And eight subjects. And you're tested on English, on history, on geography, on biology, on chemistry, on English literature. But in the Christian life, there are tons of exams. But every test, every exam is testing you on one thing. Your faith. Now, when I went to school, there were various ways they tested you that you could have open book exam, which you think would be a piece of cake, but it never was. You have multiple choice. You have all kinds of ways of being tested and examined. Even they put a group of you together. You had to put your heads together and come up with a project or a presentation. But God only uses two things 
to test the faith of his people. The one thing is the name of your church, Providence. And Providence is the way that God works in our life. The other thing God uses is his precepts or his words or his instructions in the Bible. Now tonight we're going to see Abraham's faith being tested by the precepts of God. This morning we're going to see Abraham's faith being tested by the providence of God. Now, as we work through this, we want to see it in the light of five things. And that sounds terrible, especially if you heard me preach before. But we'll try to pass the deadline here. Um, Well, we will pass the deadline, but I mean pass the deadline First of all, we want to see God's promise. Secondly, God's providence. Thirdly, Abraham's plan. Fourthly, God's providence. You might think I'm stuck for a point, so I'm just going to repeat, but hopefully it'll make sense. And then fifthly, because it has to start with P, the postscript. So first of all, God's promise. Now, we need to understand that Faith is not just faith and faith. If you follow sports, you know, and the teams, you just got to believe. You know, this year, the Blue Jays will win the World Series. And if you really want to have faith, this year, well, next year, this year, the Leafs will win the Stanley Cup. Now, that takes faith. Lots of faith. And you see, faith has to have an object. You don't have faith in yourself. You don't have faith in faith. You don't have faith in the stars or anything like that. To be true saving faith, it must be faith that is directed towards the promises of God. Now, God is asking us to believe certain things that humanly seem out of this world. They, they, they seem... There's no way we're going to pull this off. Look at the promise in verse 6 that God made to Abraham. Abraham passed through the land to place at Shechem to the Oak of Mori. Now Shechem's roughly kind of in the middle of the promised land. You could kind of fit the promised land between Windsor and Toronto if it was in North America or Canada. It's not a big land. And Shechem is kind of in the middle of that land. And then, just a little note, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord, in verse 7, appeared to Abraham and said, and promised, and gave his word, and said, Abraham, you must believe this with all your heart. To your offspring, I will give this land. Now, we have to remember that Abraham's 75. I'm 74 and a half. I can't even imagine starting out at 75 as a believer. Abraham was 75 years old. His supermodel wife, we'll meet her in a few minutes, she's 65. But they've had no children. 
They've been told to leave Ur, and Ur means the city, the big smoke, the big apple. Uh, it was the city of the ancient world. And, and Abraham and Sarai were told, just pack up all your junk, put it in a U-Haul, and you're going to go to a land that I'll tell you about as you're going. <laughs> you can imagine Sarai. <laughs> I wish this guy would stop and ask for directions. Where are you going, dear? I don't know. The Lord just said, pack up, and we're leaving. And we're going to a land that he's promised to give us. A land that belongs to other people. And an old 75-year-old man, and you don't say old ladies are old ladies, but a lady who's a little younger than 75, And they've never had children. And he says to them, you need to believe this. You need to let this guide and guard and direct your life for your entire life. I'm giving you this land that is run by the Canaanites, and I will be giving it to your seed or your offspring. He promises Abram and Sarai a place and a people, and they frankly have neither. That's God's promise. The second thing we see is God's providence, and we see that in verse 10. They leave Ur of the Chaldeans. They start going south into this land of promise. It's, it's amazing because everywhere they went, they did two things. First of all, they lived in tents. I don't mean in tents, although it will get in tents, but they lived in tents their whole life. Now, when I was young, I used to love go camping with my parents, but I sure wouldn't want to live in a tent my whole life. But they did. And wherever they went, they built an altar. Does anybody know what an altar is used for? (laughs) Anybody else know what an altar is used for? You can speak up. Yeah, sacrifices. You take living animals in good condition and you kill them. And wherever they went, they set up their tents and they built an altar. It's kind of like when I I was in public school and one of the subjects I did love was kind of history. I I think they called it social studies back in my day. But I learned about all these neat explorers. And they, they would leave England or Spain or France and they'd come to the New World. And what's the first thing they did when they got here? They planted a flag for claiming this country for England or for France or for Spain or whoever it might be. And and you see, what Abram was doing, everywhere he went, he planted the flag claiming this land for the Lord. He built altars. He built places of worship, places of sacrifice. Well, he eventually gets to the south part of this promised land. And in verse 10, we see God's providence. 
Now, your church is named Providence. What, what does Providence mean? Well, you might know the video part. That's to see things. And the pro means not that you're really good at video games, but it means to see ahead. It, it means to be able to see ahead, and therefore, because you know what's coming ahead, you can provide. You can work details out and things out. And, and we live in a real world. We believe the promises of God if we're saved, but we have to navigate through a maze of a world that's kind of wacky at times, isn't it? Kind of crazy. And, and what we believe that God's providence sees ahead and therefore adjusts accordingly. I'm one of those people. My kids said, you need to be thinking about moving to Benbrook. And I'm one of those people that starts at the end and then works backwards. So we went to Don Brown's funeral home and we booked two spots behind the church. And our kids said, that isn't exactly what we had in mind. <laughs> and I said, well, you start at the end and then you work backwards. And, and we're assuming that the providence of God is going to fulfill the promises of God. But this is where it gets tricky. Because in your life, in my life, in a church's life, it may seem at times that the providence of God is working against the promises of God. God says, listen, I want you to leave the most modern update place in the world at that time, or they even had a big library, which would be kind of neat. They had all kinds of stuff. And they go to this place that is filled with Canaanite pagans, and, and God says, you go there, and I'm going to give the place to you and your ancestors. And it seems like he hardly settles down. At first, it looks kind of neat. But in verse 10, what happens? Now, there was a famine in the land. It was a severe famine. God's got a problem, I guess. The other gods, the Canaanite gods, are kind of running the show. They have gods who are in charge of rain and thunder and all this. No. There are no other gods, really. And there is only one god who's running the whole show. And the providence of God, the God who governs the weather, who determines the temperature for every day, for every hour of every day, the rainfall, whatever it might be, that God has decreed there will be a severe famine in the promised land. Now, famines are serious, aren't they? Because they have a tendency to kill people. There's a shortage of rain. There may add to that. There may be an influx of locusts or bugs or whatever. And, and God's got all kinds of things at his disposal. And that's what the Bible tells us, that, that every creature obeys him. 
he knows absolutely everything. He's decreed how much rain will fall. He's decreed how hot it will be. And, and so he tells these people to go to a land, a land that he has promised them, and when they kind of get settled down, they've gone from the north to the middle to the south, and then there's a severe famine. That doesn't make sense, does it? What the world is God doing? Why would his providence seem to contradict his promises? Because we are saved by faith alone, and we live by faith alone. And you see, the problem with faith is you can have a phony faith. You, 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 you can have a kind of a superficial faith, maybe because your parents have it, maybe because in the group that you live in, it's kind of a neat thing. The truth is, my faith must be tested for two reasons. First of all, to prove that it's genuine faith and then secondly, if it is genuine faith, to improve it and, and to make it a growing faith. Now, you're looking at quite a specimen here. And one of the reasons I'm quite a specimen is because I work out. I get dumbbells and I put marshmallows on each end. And I just, you know, just do that stuff. And at first I have one at each end, marshmallow, and then a second one and a third one and... Well, no wonder I look like I do, eh? No. If I'm actually going to get in shape, which I rather doubt, I'm going to put heavy weights that is going to not only test my strength, but improve my strength, increase my endurance, enable me to press on and to persevere. And so God, because he loves us and because the most valuable thing about you this morning or this afternoon, if you're a Christian, is your faith. It's not your bank account. It's not your house. It's not your investment. It's not even your children or grandchildren. The most valuable thing about you is your faith. And it must be tested. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, you will not get to heaven. Without faith, your sins are not forgiven. Without faith, you are not a true child of God. So we've seen God's promise. He promises two things to Abram, a place, a land, and a people, descendants, to an old guy who's left everything important, 75 years old, has no kids. Then we see God's providence. Once he obeys God, comes into the promised land, surveys it all, plants the flag of the Lord at various places. Now the providence of God comes and seems to contradict the promises of God. Well, that brings us to our third thing, and that is Abraham's plans. Um, Christianity is the thinking person's religion. I hope you never come 
when these people gather and check your brains at the door. I was saved at 17, and I really never thought until I got saved. Because you're dealing with things that stretch the mind. And if we're serious about loving the Lord and worshiping the Lord and obeying the Lord and serving the Lord and getting the gospel out, we will be thinking people. And so Abram, in verse 10, begins to think and begins to draw plans. What is his plan now that there's a severe famine in the land? Well, just due south of the Negev, the south part of Israel, is a place that's well watered. It has the great Nile River. And he decides, you know, goes online, checks things out, how things are doing. And oh, in Egypt, hmm. So he packs up the U-Haul again, the tents and all that stuff, and he heads south. Now notice what he didn't do. He didn't check with the Lord. He didn't ask for directions. He didn't ask for guidance. The Lord gave him no permission to leave the promised land. And, and Abraham is acting as if, though he believes the promise in his head, practically he doesn't believe the promise. Because it seems the providence of God is contradicting the promise of God. And so he's got to come up with a plan of his own. Now what's fascinating is, <laughs> I don't know where this guy's been, but when he gets to the border of Egypt, he realizes he's got a problem. But he looks at their passports, and Abram and Sarah have the last name. And one of the ways you have the last name is by marrying a cute, good-looking guy, and you take his name. The other way you may have the, last, the same last name is you are his sister, and so Abraham says, look what he says. He says, babe, you're drop-dead gorgeous. Now, he should have stopped there. He was doing great until then. But notice what he says in verse 11. Sarai, I know that you are a very beautiful woman. Should have put a period there and say, no more. But then, talk about a come on line. Baby, if you really love me, you'll do this. I'm not the only one who thinks you're drop-dead gorgeous. Those Egyptians got eyes for pretty girls. And when we go across the border, they're going to figure out pretty quickly, if you're my wife, the best way to make you marriageable is to make you a widow. And Sarai, if you really love me, you'll just say my, you're my sister so they can take you and save my life. Wow. Isn't that kind of interesting that the father of the faith would come up like, with a line like that? Now notice what he's doing. He's not trusting in the word of the Lord. He's trusting in his own words, isn't he? This is our plan, okay? 
When the Egyptians see you in verse 12, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and they'll let you live. So in verse 13, this is the word that we're going to trust in. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. And lo and behold, verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was very beautiful. He nailed that. And the princes told Pharaoh, man, you want another good-looking babe in your harem? Check out this Sarai gal. They just came in through immigration. And lo and behold, um, they took the woman and put her into Pharaoh's harem. Boy, it's amazing how we get into trouble when we trust our own plans and our own words rather than the Lord's promises and his words. I've been a pastor many years, and what hair I have left is gray, and not all of that's the fault of my kids. Some of it's the fault of other people's kids, and some of it, probably most of it, is the fault of other kids' parents. And it's amazing what they've told me the Bible really should say. Oh, I know, Pastor, Generally, that's true, but in my case. Well, here's the kicker. In verse 16, and for her sake, for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. He's got sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels. Kind of like a dowry, I guess, to marry his sister. Not only is the land part of the promise in real trouble, but the seed part is in really, really trouble, isn't it? Well, that brings us back to our fourth point. And that is God's providence. Now, if you were the teacher, what would you say that Abram's big problem was? Liar, liar, pants on fire? And that's what we often zero in on. I've got to learn to, let, I've got to, learn to lie less. Or I've got to learn to be more generous. Or I've got to learn, you know. And if we're not honest with, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we will think that the promises of God, they're true when it's going well. That marriage, boy, imagine God giving me a wife like her. And then providentially, it's not as wonderful as I had hoped because she had actually married me, and I'm not as wonderful as I think I am. That new job, that church, that ministry, whatever ever it is, and we get into situations, we feel God has really led us there, and then when we get into it, lo and behold, he, he does pop quizzes, he has tests, he has exams, and you know what we're concerned about? 
the very same thing Abram was. This is going to kill me. And I better do something to save my life. And we come up with plans. Have you noticed your tendency to look for human solutions for a divine promise? And it's amazing what we can baptize that were our solutions to a divine promise. I may sin against the pastor, but I'm leaving today at the end. Um, During COVID, I was phoned by a person, and they asked if they could meet with me. They had been depressed for quite a while, barely came out of their room. So we met at our backyard, six feet apart. And uh, so I asked this fellow, what's going on in your life? And he said, well, I was at Bible college, and I've had a number of relationships, and none of them have ever worked out. So I told the Lord, because I was interested in this girl, that if this wasn't going to work, for the Lord to stop me from entering into it. And he said, I prayed that, I was sincere in everything, and we entered into the relationship, and it went really great for three or four months, and she not only dumped me, but she went back to her old boyfriend. And I said, so what's your problem? And he said, well, I'm very discouraged with the Lord. He doesn't keep his promises. And I said, show me in the Bible that it says, thou shalt go with this girl and she shall never dump thee. <laughs> and he said, well, well, it wasn't really there. I said, you see what you did? You made a promise for the Lord. And now you're mad at the Lord because... He didn't keep your promise. And you see, we need to be very, very careful because being a believer isn't telling God what we're going to do and then hopefully he'll stamp it and send it back down. Okay, that Don's a pretty smart guy. I wish I'd have thought of that. But it sounds like a good plan to me. And you see, the difficulty is that